This podcast was recorded on Saturday, April 30th at 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Harassing was um, like keeping me, uh, bringing me in his office or using a professional reason to get me in his office and close the doors and pretend we had to talk about something very confidential. And then once the doors closed, which was not able to be opened from the outside, if it was locked, well, I felt like I was trapped and he was able to touch me and, and be very all over me. According to a former Senate employee, that's what it was like working for Senator Don Meredith. She claims he sexually harassed her repeatedly in his office and on a work-related outing. And she isn't the only ex-staffer who's come forward. Today on the show, we'll bring you exclusive details of a HuffPost Canada investigation into the allegations of alarming workplace behaviour by the Toronto Senator. And... I am going to throw my support behind Maxime Bernier because I think it's the right thing for the party. And I think it's the right thing for the country. And I think the probability of success of winning a majority mandate has actually increased. The shark has jumped. Kevin O'Leary dropped out of the Tory leadership race 99 days after he began campaigning. What does O'Leary's endorsement of Maxime Bernier mean for the 12 other candidates still in the contest? We'll chat about that with HuffPost Canada's politics editor, Ryan Maloney. But first, the details about Senator Don Meredith. I never knew how long it would, it would happen, you know, for how many how many times a day, how long it would would keep me in there for. This is Follow Up, a HuffPost Canada politics podcast. I'm your host, Althea Raj. Absolutely, hell. Um, Worst office environment I've ever experienced uh, before in my uh, career. It's just just sad, uh, horrible. Uh, a place where uh, colleagues were always uh, seemed to be in a state of duress. Um, uh, and just the list goes on and on. The office of Senator Don Meredith was seen as a revolving door. His high staff turnover after just a few years raised flags, so much so that an official Senate workplace assessment was ordered in 2015. That probe was done by a third-party company and not released to the public. But after that report, the Senate ethics officer started her own investigation into multiple allegations of sexual harassment and workplace bullying. That inquiry is still ongoing. For the past three years, HuffPost Canada reporter Zian Lum has been digging into this story. She joins me now. Hi, Z. Hi, Althea. So what exactly are the allegations? They're pretty serious and damning allegations. They include bullying, making threats, harassment, and sexual touching. Over the past three years, I got to know several of the senator's former staffers, and I've interviewed them many times throughout the past three years. I actually was put in contact with some of them in 2014 after I reported on the senator's fake doctorate that he received from an online unaccredited institution based in California. We're about to play some clips from these former staff members and we're actually protecting their identities by changing their voices because of professional and personal concerns. 
So here's what one of them claims happened regularly behind closed doors. Sometimes he would also uh, use uh, a time for prayer. If uh, he needed to pray, which would uh, be something he would do pretty frequently since he's a, a pastor, and he would ask me to join him and the way the his religion prays is to at least put a hand on your uh, on the person next to you and he would use that excuse to touch me more than just putting his hands on my shoulder for the prayer and we'd, we'd go through the prayer where else would he touch you he would touch um, my rear end and my breast. And how did you feel? Violated. Mm -hmm. um, scared. Disgust. Uh, used. Sick. You know, it was it was sickening me all the time, every time. So as you know, Senator Meredith is also a Pentecostal pastor, and his work as a pastor came up in many of the conversations that I had with the former employees. They claimed that on many occasions, the senator had asked them to write sermons while on Senate paid time. And also they alleged that they worked overtime hours, but were not expected to track those overtime hours. Here's how one former employee explains that situation. To work uh, a lot sometimes, and then there are certain peers when the house is not in seating. So most uh, offices and the uh, administration understood this fact and created a situation where staff uh, can actually uh, record and document the, the long hours to work and then take it back once the house is not seated. Um, and he pretty much said, no, you cannot do that. You will work, you must work. I expect you to work, but don't document the extra hours. What is Senator Meredith's response to all these workplace allegations? Senator Meredith's office declined our request for an interview, and we've also tried to reach out to his lawyer, William Trudell, on multiple occasions, but he has not responded to our request to talk to him or his client regarding these workplace allegations. Hmm. So did the alleged victims report what was going on? They did. We have emails that show members of his own party. The Conservative Party at the time. That's right. And Senate Human Resources were informed about the alleged workplace behavior as early as 2014. And former staffers who I've spoken to claim that the center had made threats to ruin their careers if they had spoken out about what happened behind closed doors. One woman told me that she was petrified. She said that she didn't know what would happen if she actually filed an official complaint if the senator found out that she did. I know some people may be wondering, why didn't they just quit? So I asked each of them this question, and here's what one former staffer had to say about that. Within a month that I was there, I could just see it was a, a bad decision. But again, you get caught up in there, and um, the, the psychological pieces just come to bear, you know, um, um, whereby you don't want to quit, or you need your job, you need to make bills, you, 
yeah, family think you can survive it, but then um, over the long haul, uh, it's like torture, you know, um, repetitions kind of wear you down and, um, and you have to make decisions in your best interest at that time. As many of you listening may remember, the Senate ethics officer investigated Meredith for a two-year relationship with a teenager, a 16-year-old. Lise Ricard released a damning report in March that found that the senator had abused the powers of his office and had breached the ethics code of the upper chamber. Z, how is that report relevant to this current workplace investigation? So in that report, the Senate ethics officer found that the teen was a credible and cooperative witness. Meanwhile, Senator Meredith was not credible in his testimony and had actually objected to it right from the start. That's what she found. That's what she found. That was her conclusion. And in my conversations with his former employees, they found, after reading that very detailed report, they found a pattern, an alleged pattern of behavior that aligned with their own experiences of bullying, abuse, and harassment that they have claimed to have with the senator. Why is it taking so long for the Senate to reach a decision about what to do with Senator Meredith? So after that March report, um, many of Senator Meredith's colleagues had called on him to step down, but he did not. He has apologized for a quote-unquote moral failing, and he has said that he doesn't think it's a reason for him to quit as senator. So Ricard's report went to a standing Senate committee on ethics and conflict of interest, and they've been deliberating over it for a few weeks right now over what course of action to take in regards to this report. Basically, they're wondering if they're going to suspend him or expel him, basically deem his seat vacant. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. And they're taking their time because this is a precedent-setting case. It's the first time that the Senate Ethics Committee has dealt with a decision under the revamped ethics code. And the new rules give the Senate power to discipline members for personal conduct. And also, they give Senator Meredith a chance to plead his case. Here's Senator David Tkachet on why it seems to be taking so long. I'm sure what they're wrestling with right now is the constitutional arguments about kicking the guy out or not. Yeah. I'm sure that's what the Ethics Committee is, is wrestling with. And uh, suspension is not an issue, uh, but uh, removing a senator without um, a criminal charge is a big, big issue. There are some senators who are calling for his removal, and uh, or should we suspend them? I don't think there'll be an issue of not doing anything. That's very interesting because, of course, this seems to come back to the whole Senate expense scandal and how that issue was handled by the upper chamber. Um, that's when, of course, Senators Mike Duffy, Patrick Brazo, Pamela Wallen, and Matt Carr were basically thrown out of the upper chamber with some senators, notably Hugh Siegel and others, arguing that um, these members had not been given the chance to really plead their case. And of course, as we know, Mike Duffy was cleared by a provincial court judge. Pamela Wallen was never charged by the RCMP with regards to her controversial expenses. And uh, the case against Patrick Brazo was uh, basically not followed through. Uh, They decided not to continue with the case. Mm -hmm. And that kind of constructive criticism about the process led to this new ethics code. So I understand uh, from the former staffers that you spoke with that they're pretty frustrated by the pace of this Senate investigation into the the workplace issues. It's been two years, is that right? That's correct. It's been two years since Senate Ethics Office officially launched their investigation. 
uh, I asked Lise Ricard why it was taking so long for her office to finish this report, and they sent us this statement, which I will read out. With respect to the length of time for an inquiry, this depends on the issues that are involved. Its complexity, the number of individuals that are required to be interviewed, scheduling issues, the number of process issues that are raised by the various parties, and the time that is required to, in order to properly canvas and dispose of relevant issues. There is a process that is required to be followed under the Ethics and Conflict of Interest Code for Senators. She goes on to say that the process is confidential, but that, quote, the results at the end of the process will be made public, end quote. Hmm. We just don't know when that will be. So what do the former employees want to see? They don't want to see this workplace report buried. Remember, this is the second workplace investigation into Meredith's office. The first one was actually done three years ago by a third-party company brought in by the Senate. So actually, for some of the participants, it's actually been a three-year process. And of the former staff members who I've spoken to, they all say that it's been incredibly emotionally exhausting. They also say that they don't want others to go through this process. They want to see change. I think it's also important to stress that... um most of the folks, not only the parliamentarians, but, you know, rank-and-file folks, uh, staffers, uh, you know, uh, who come with more often than not good credentials always want to make a difference, you know, want to work hard. So we have this thing about you must work, keep working, work ethic, commit, 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 but, uh, you know, and that kind of kept kept me there for a while, but after a while, like I said before, the, so the best of us, you know, the, the, the worst things can tear you down, and, and those did. There's also the issue about how the Senate's former leadership handled the allegations. Again, we have emails showing Senate leaders and human resources being made aware of the workplace allegations in early 2014. At the time, the senator was still a member of the Conservative Caucus, he was only removed from the Tory caucus in June 2015 after the Toronto Star published a story about the senator's affair with the team. I wonder if the Senate decides to remove Senator Meredith because of that investigation and those recommendations that are coming this week, if the lines of accountability will ever be fully told to the Canadian public, you know, like who knew what with the Conservative Party leadership uh, in the Senate who should have acted and didn't. Similarly, who knew what in human resources and probably could have spared these individuals a lot of grief and heartache for a really long time. Mm -hmm. And those individuals, these former employees who I've spoken to, they are also wondering the same things. And they also want to see Senator Meredith expelled from the chamber. They think that his alleged behavior doesn't bring honor to his position and to the institution that he serves. Thank you, Z. You can read Zian Lum's exclusive story on HuffPost Canada's website. I'm Peter Harder, Senator for Ontario and Government Representative in the Senate. I spoke with Senator Harder in his office on Parliament Hill Friday. He's the representative of the Liberal government in the upper chamber. Thank you for joining us. Happy to be here. Now, you've been in this job for uh, a little over a year. What were you told when you arrived in this position about um, Senator Meredith, if anything? 
I really wasn't uh, told anything in the sense that uh, I didn't go through a review of uh, what uh, state of play was with various uh, um, inquiries that were underway. Were you surprised by the report? I was shocked uh, by the, um, uh, the intensity of the uh, findings uh, that um, we have here, uh, uh, a finding of fact by an independent uh, ethics officer uh, who clearly found uh, breaches of the, of the ethics code. Uh, and um, I think it's a significant um, opportunity for the Senate as it deals with this for the first time, this, this code. Uh, to um, ensure that the integrity of the ethics conduct and the integrity of the process of ethics review is uh, seen by Canadians as being both fair and reasonably expeditious. Now, as you know, there's a second report. Um, the ethics officer is looking into workplace harassment issues. Why has the Senate decided to deal with the, um, I guess, the recommendations and the allegations in the first report dealing with Ms. M before hearing what's in the next report? Well, that's not really the Senate's um, responsibility. It's, uh, it's as to when the ethics officer, who's an independent agent, uh, tables the report. And uh, those are decisions that the ethics officer uh, takes uh, with respect to the conduct of the work that she's undertaking. What uh, happens to the second report, the workplace harassment report, if senators decide to expel or suspend Senator Meredith? I can't speculate, um, and it's not for my office to determine that, really. It's, uh, it's for the ethics uh, officer uh, who is undertaking uh, those, um, those reviews. And we do have an ethics committee of the Senate, uh, which um, has appropriate management of the file. I just wonder if it makes that report moot because the senator perhaps would no longer be in the chamber. I wouldn't want to speculate. And at the same time, that report possibly points the finger at um, wrongdoing or just sort of ignorance from either uh, Senate Human Resources or within Mr. Meredith's party at the time. It deals with um, problems that his own staff had. And so by, you know, possibly expulsing him before this other report is made public, I wonder how Canadians can have faith that, you know, there's still not that culture of trying to hide things under the rug. Yeah, I think that it would be inappropriate for me to speculate on uh, circumstances that haven't, uh, haven't taken place. Now, you've been on this mission to um, try to rebrand this place as a um, upstanding and ethical and independent and nonpartisan chamber. What does Senator Meredith's um, problems due to your efforts to try to rebrand this place? Uh, look, I don't want to um, uh, beat around the bush. I said right from the start that uh, this report was a kick in the gut. Uh, and it does um, uh, certainly remind the public of some of the issues that the Senate uh, was struggling with uh, over the last number of years. I think what is different uh, is the fact that there is now a, a, an ethical code uh, that uh, against which uh, behavior is being uh, adjudicated, that there is an arm's length ethics commissioner. Uh, there has been a finding of fact. There is a ethics committee that is uh, reviewing and will make recommendations to the Senate uh, as to what sanctions, if any, uh, ought to be under uh, ought to be taken by the Senate. We are a self-governing body in that sense. Uh, and that there should be some comfort, at least that uh, that uh, behavior, uh, and code of conduct are uh, are very vigilantly observed within the Senate. 
uh, and those are new practices uh, that uh, they don't absolve uh, the behavior, but it's really how you uh, how you respond to inappropriate behavior uh, in a place like the Senate. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. That was Peter Harder, the government representative in the Senate. Senator Meredith could find out this week what punishment he'll face for having had a sexual relationship with a teenager. The Senate Ethics Committee chair told reporters she's hoping to finalize recommendations and table them in the Senate this week. Up next, the conservative leadership race takes a sharp turn. Kevin O'Leary, businessman, reality TV show star, and now former conservative leadership candidate. He dropped out of the race a few hours before the last debate was scheduled to begin last Wednesday. In my view, my assessment, my decision, is I needed 30 seats. We have 12. I had to grow the party's base in Quebec. And looking at my numbers, I was singularly unsuccessful there for whatever reason. And look, I thought I could have done better, but I didn't. Mr. O'Leary, Cynthia Mulligan, City News. I don't buy it. You don't really expect us to think the French Quebec factor is an issue when you've known this all along. What's the real reason? No, no. The, the real reason is I only got to 12% in Quebec. That's a fact. Now, you have to ask yourself, what is the likely outcome of only having maybe 11 or 12 seats or maybe less if I couldn't get support there? The truth about Canadian politics, and I don't have to tell you this, you people follow it, look at how many times Quebec has determined the federal outcome in elections in this country. It is the Florida of Canada. It often decides for the country for the very reason it has 78 ridings. You have to have some path to being successful there. I looked at the probability, I felt it was low, I thought this was a higher probability. Max and I's policies are practically identical. We met last June, we've been a friendly competition since that started. This is the right thing for the Conservative Party. Or did you look at Trump and realize it's not that much fun after all? <laughs> Listen, this is the hardest job I've ever had, but I was winning. But it's not good enough to win the leadership if you can't win the majority mandate. And look, anybody can look at the data, and you will now. The, the big surprise for all of us is how strong the party is, 259,000 plus members. That was a big number for all of us. The larger the number got, the harder it was for me, obviously, because I, had, I thought I had sold the most memberships at 35,335. But obviously it's a bigger number. But it doesn't change this fact. You have to have a path to a majority mandate if you're going to take on Justin Trudeau. Uh, my name's Luca Tonin, uh, 22 years old, a relative uh, newcomer to the voting game, and actually not sure who I'm voting for yet. I was kind of leaning toward one candidate who's no longer in the race. Kevin O'Leary? Uh, yes, but now I'm not pretty open. So this, I think, is a good opportunity for me and uh, other undecided um, voters to see what the candidates are like. I see that you have gathered uh, 
an Andrew Shear pamphlet, an Elisa Raitt pamphlet, yes. and a Michael Chong pamphlet. Yes. I'm a bit of a shopper here. Right now, it's it, the, the race is wide open. Hi, my name is John McEtitian. So once again, it proves that really rich people know nothing about politics and shouldn't get in. So Kevin's basic math that he couldn't win actually shows us that for all of his arrogance, which is even more than we thought, his ego is actually less than we thought. Because anybody who wants to lead a national Canadian political party has to have an ego big enough to believe that they can change the numbers in Quebec or any other part of the country. Certainly, when our last three successful leaders did that, they were seen as not having a, a hope at all, and they went on to be very successful. My name is Warrington Ellicott. I live in Orangeville. Members of Dufferin Caledon, Conservative Party members. I, I was quite surprised. Um, but, you know, I give him full credit. If he didn't feel that he could get over the finish line, it's the, it's the uh, fair thing to do. You're, you're from Quebec. Your group, you're from Quebec. My, my friend Gerard. Oui, je parle français. Uh, I know that too. There were quite a few disappointed faces in the lobby of Toronto St. Lawrence Centre for the Performing Arts at the debate Wednesday. The 13 remaining candidates, however, seemed thrilled by the new developments. They were glad-handling members, hoping to pick up support from O'Leary's sign-ups and party members who are still undecided. On stage, most competitors zeroed in on perceived frontrunner Quebec MP Maxime Bernier, and most took advantage of the last debate to fine-tune their sales pitch. Margaret Thatcher was too extreme to win. Ronald Reagan was too extreme to win. We win by being principled. When we water down our message, when we become liberal light, we don't win. So we need to stand up for farmers for, uh, and not cave in in front of President Trump, who wants to ruin our dairy milk industry, and who also wants to attack our softwood lumber. I ran in the 2004 election, and I remember that election. <clears throat> we lost, you know why? We didn't support the Kyoto Protocol, and we didn't have a credible policy to reduce emissions. We won in 2006, we won in 2008, you know why? Mr. Harper in the election platform promised to put a price on carbon. We promised a national cap and trade system. That's exactly what we did in order to win, and we won those two elections. I'm proposing to do the same thing through a revenue-neutral carbon tax. To win in 2019, we have to create jobs, not kill jobs, and that's what a carbon tax is going to do. I sat down with HuffPost Canada's senior politics editor, Ryan Maloney, Thursday morning right after the debate to talk about the O'Leary bombshell and where this leaves everything. Ryan? Althea. <laughs> what did you make of Mr. O'Leary's decision to drop out of the race? Well, I know some people are claiming they weren't surprised, but I was very surprised um, to see him to see him exit. I mean, I was one of those folks who was pretty uh, skeptical of Mr. O'Leary from the beginning, in the sense that it was hard to tell how serious he was from the very beginning that he was talked, you know, talked about as a potential candidate to his exit, where people were asking him, "Did you even want to do this in the first place?" But the reality of it was that he was a serious uh, contender because of his profile, because of his celebrity. And because of, I guess, his 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 skills with communications, um, in terms of uh, in terms of messaging. But I mean, when was the last time you saw someone quit right before uh, folks are just about to vote and endorse essentially his main competitor, who just called him a loser, a desperate loser, last month? So yeah, and accused him of voter fraud. And yeah, of course, <laughs> accused him of voter fraud. So it was strange. 
It was strange and surprising, but you you didn't you you weren't as surprised, I think. Uh, no, I think the people around him really believed that Mr. O'Leary intended to go all the way. Um, but I just kept thinking back about that interview he did with CPAC about a year ago. It was in May at the conservative convention where he said, you know, he was still musing about whether or not he was going to join the race. And he said, well, you know, I could be a candidate or I could be a kingmaker and how he had basically entertained all the other candidates over the summer. He had met with Mr. Bernier. He had met um, with Mr. Clement, Tony Clement, who talked about how the two had spent time at their do- at his dock and with the Muskokas. I didn't seem as as odd. Plus, you know, he he never actually took part in an official debate. Yeah. He managed to get his name on the ballot. It's still actually printed on the ballot. Um, so people can still vote for him, even though he's no longer a candidate. I mean, certainly, you know, seeing him on TV in America, constantly seeing him in Miami, it was constant questions how serious he was about this. Um, but I th- I'm one of those people when you get in and you're near the top that I assume that you want the job. But, uh, boy, that was a fun little shakeup yesterday, right before the last debate. So is this um, the boon that some people are suggesting for Maxime Bernier? So I'm in the camp that thinks that this is. Um, it's hard to exactly gauge for sure who's 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 in the top, but um, there's no question that they had uh, a lot of attention. The polling suggested that they were neck and neck. Um, so when your main competitor drops out, endorses you, says you're the one that can beat him, uh, Trudeau that is, and says that you're the one that can win in Quebec um, for a party that needs, you know, that uh, perhaps needs to grow in Quebec and other places, that might be that might be enough to put him over the top. But as we discussed yesterday, now the spotlight's on Maxime Bernier and his policies, uh, which are very right-wing and very conservative, perhaps not uh, something that uh, mainstream conservatives are entirely comfortable with. And so there's still a couple weeks left. And as we saw last night, folks are turning up the heat on Maxime now. More freedom, it's lower taxes. How are we going to do that? I will do that. Max admits he hasn't done the, uh, the math on his economic plan. I will save you $30 billion a year. That's my tax reform. That's important to do the big, the bold reform at the federal level. And don't be scared about that. So yes, we want to have a flat tax of 15% for 90% of Canadians. Yes, we want to abolish corporate welfare. It is not fair. Max proposes simplistic solutions for incredibly complex fundamental issues, and we need more careful thought. Donald Trump, he wants a deal, and I'm the only one that can make a deal with him. And if Maxime thinks that he's going to get a trade deal with Donald Trump by going down and reading Adam Smith to Donald Trump and make all these things, that's not how you do it. You don't start off negotiations by unilaterally surrendering an entire section of our economy. This was the first time where really we saw other competitors lash out at Maxime Bernier. You know, it's there were the usual um, rebuttals to Kelly Leach's plan to screen newcomers, um, the usual comments about how Michael Chong's plan to uh, have a carbon tax uh, would be disastrous for the Canadian economy from these, obviously, these challenges from his opponents. But it was the first time that we actually saw people um, really go after Mr. Bernier aside from Stephen Blaney on supply management. Absolutely. And, I mean, I, Michael Chong seemed to be, in my estimation, one of the more aggressive uh, people towards Bernier, uh, specifically using words like extreme positions, uh, which I think is one of those uh, words that, you know, maybe folks who haven't had a good look at exactly what Maxime is proposing um, 
when it's being labeled extreme, it makes you want to have a look at what he's talking about. Um, Aaron O'Toole was uh, a lot more aggressive than I had seen before. Um, I think he had, well, he had called Bernier's letter recently on supply management an embarrassment. He had said that he was running to be governor of Wisconsin, which I thought was, a pr- in French, he said that, which I thought was a pretty funny la- jab. Max, je veux être le premier ministre de Canada, pas le gouverneur de Wisconsin. When I was a lawyer on Bay Street, Max, and I negotiated deals, I didn't sit on the same side of the table as my opponent. Max, your letter to the Globe and Mail praising Donald Trump was an embarrassment. We need a leader who will fight for all Canadians. Certainly Bernier seemed like the one to beat now because now the focus is on him. Yeah, O'Leary very unselfishly has given the... uh, the spotlight and the scrutiny over to his friend Maxime. So, yeah. Well, luck. you saw that but. in the debate, you know, like Bernier basically hanged back. He didn't use any of his rebuttals. He spoke when he was attacked, but he didn't lash out at any of the other candidates. That's he, an excellent point. I was, uh, I was front waiting. Campaign. I was waiting for the rebuttal, especially when, you know, they were needling him and just being very uh, direct. And there was anybody want a rebuttal as in uh, Maxime, do you want to? And no, he's fine. And you know what else I thought was interesting? Kelly Leach and Maxime were not getting into it as they have before. Well, they're obviously all competing for these 35,000 members that Kevin O'Leary has signed up. Many of them are young people. And, you know, if we think even further back um, a year, a year and a half ago, when Mr. O'Leary was still just making headlines about his possible musing for running in the contest, he talked about, you know, I could run as a liberal, I could run as a conservative. Basically, I think... Which conservatives love to hear that, right? When you're running for leader of the party, right? Well, I think Wednesday's announcement um, really underscored the fact that Mr. O'Leary was basically only interested in being prime minister of the country, and he was not at all interested in being conservative party leader. He had no intentions of, you know, being on the opposition benches for the next two years or possibly the next six years, um, signing on to a new season of Shark Tank, for example. So those new members that he has signed up, they really could go anywhere. They may not be libertarians like Maxime Bernier. They may be more Michael Chong type conservatives. So who do you think wins in all this? You talked about Maxime, but are there other winners? Well, I I, I think that, um, I think Andrew Scheer is probably you know he's somebody that has been suggested as someone that will sneak up and uh and potentially capture this thing people will coalesce um i think i could see with you know with another top tier candidate now having left andrew Shear has big differences with maxime over things like supply management so especially because of his age i think that's a a factor i really do because if the assumption is that the fact that he's in his late 30s that he's in his 30s and that this might not be one election against Trudeau. It might be a while. And the thinking might go that Scheer gets 2019 and then he gets another kick at it, you know, three or four years later. And maybe he'll be in a better position. I think that's appealing. And, and as you say, he's, you know, he, he you know, he's, he's got an attitude. They call him Harper with a smile, I guess. And that might just be what they're looking for. I also think Aaron O'Toole, this could help him in some respects. As we saw last night, a little bit more forceful, um, a little bit more getting on people's radar. There's some suggestion that people are, that the caucus is coalescing around him, that he's, you know, a decent enough. uh, He's definitely gaining endorsements. Absolutely. So I'm very curious to see how he does. I think it was a good debate for Lisa Wright. She was pretty forceful on the identity questions, but that she also reminded 
basically party members that it would be a good thing to have a woman run against Justin Trudeau. It would be a good thing to have support from urban Canada and to pick a leader that would be able to do that. I absolutely think it was her her best debate and that moment where she, I know she has called out Leach before on this, but it, it, it the way she framed it in terms of going to the to the basketball games on Sunday or Saturdays with her children, seeing a diverse group of Canadians and the notion that she doesn't want conservatives to be seen as anti uh, newcomer, anti immigrant. And also the reality is that it, that kind of um, narrative will cost people like her, her seat, which I think is an interesting thing. Instead of just saying, we're not going to win in Toronto, Vancouver, Montreal, as we hear, she's saying, this will literally mean that I can't win, you know, that other GTA people will not be able to win. So, I thought it was particularly strong, and she just seemed very relaxed. Maybe it was the home home court advantage, but it was a rest. I think it was her best debate so far. We're gonna leave it there for those listeners uh, who are wondering what the background sound is. We are taping this while it is Bring Your Kids to Work Day. So if you heard little children screaming, that is what that was. And also, I apologize for being sick. There's also a French bulldog running around. So fun day at HuffPost. I don't think we heard any barking though. Okay, thanks very much. Bye. Bye. <laughs> Talk to you soon. <laughs> Just like hanging up after a nice phone call. Um, this whole thing stays. In, this whole thing edit. stays in the pod. I think we need to edit that. We recently learned that the conservative membership rolls have ballooned to 259,000 and voting in the leadership race has just begun. All those members are now receiving their mail-in ballots. Here are a few words to consider from conservative hopeful Deepak O'Brien about the impact of the party's surprising number of new members. What we don't know, and this is very important, is that in general terms, the conservative base was around 100,000. Coming down with 250,000 is the non-traditional conservative base. Where is the non-traditional conservative base going to go? That is the key thing for this election. Well, that's it for this week's episode of Follow Up. Please subscribe to our show on iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Give us a good review. I know, I'm asking again. If you want to get in touch with us, you can reach me on Facebook or Twitter at Althea Raj. A big thanks this week to our co-producer extraordinaire, Zian Lum, and our lovely technical producer, Stephanie Werner. Andre Lau is our executive producer. Uh, she's also pretty awesome. I'm Althea Raj. Thank you for listening. Have a great day.